Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Whatever your legacy is in this world, let it just be a guy who showed up, was called by God to do something, and you just did what you were called to do. We're not going to name any pews after you. We're not going to name any chairs after you. You don't get a brick for this building. Like, that's not what it's about. What it's about is just show up and do what God's called you to do. Nahum's like, you don't need to know my story. We can talk later. We'll see Nahum in heaven. You got all eternity to figure out, hey, Nahum, what's your story? Like many prophets of the Old Testament, Nahum was faithful to just be used by God without any selfish intentions. In today's teaching, Pastor James will look at the message Nahum would be delivering to Judah and what distinguished Nahum as the messenger. God speaks to us in many different ways, and he's always looking for a willing heart to deliver his word to others. Are you ready to hear from him today, or are you available to share his truth with whoever he puts in your life? Now here's Pastor James in the book of Nahum chapter 1 with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. Let me give you some context here historically for Nahum. Um, he would have been a contemporary of Zephaniah, also could have been a contemporary of uh, Jeremiah too. So when he's writing this letter, and the whole of Nahum is basically what I've titled this minor prophet book is Nineveh's death song, right? So uh, I got copyright on the, that for a band name, uh, Nineveh's death song, so you can't take it. Um, no, um, but basically this letter is like, just predicting the demise of Nineveh. And so Nahum would naturally fall after Jonah. Okay, about 150 years after Jonah, Nahum shows up because Jonah went to Nineveh, reluctantly went there, preached a message of, you know, basically repentance. And the city repented, um, almost, I mean, everybody in the city repented. Cows, People, rulers, they all repented. I don't know how cows repent, but they got sackcloth and ashes too. Just read that book. But that only lasted for a little while. That generation that got transformed and saved by God, for some reason, lost it the next generation. Because you had that generation that had this tremendous, probably one of the the biggest revivals globally, world history-wise, happened in Nineveh. Close to... I mean, there were the, the estimates are like there could have been close to a million people living in that city. And that, that city was big enough to actually house that many people. Uh, when you think of uh, Nineveh, you know, major or the, the main part of Nineveh and then the outskirts of Nineveh, it seemed as though, you know, everybody turned to the Lord. But then something happened because it didn't continue on. 150 years later, God says, okay, time's up, Nineveh. I'm destroying you. And he totally destroyed Nineveh wiped them out completely. But that, that was only 150 years. That's not a lot of time. I mean, that's only a couple of generations that have passed by in that time. So from when Jonah showed up and proclaimed the message, 150 years later, I mean, they are getting wiped out. But some generation forgot to pour into the other generation, the next generation. And so what you, what you get when that happens is destruction. 
I mean, that's what you can expect. You can expect it even in our great country that we live in. If one generation is going to neglect the, uh, the next generation concerning spiritual matters, concerning Jesus, destruction is on the horizon. I don't care who you are. If we're not willing to invest in the next generation, we can anticipate God will wipe out any nation he wants to. So the side of the coin that is mercy on, for God, the, the flip side of that is justice. So he showed mercy to Nineveh when Jonah showed up. And then they quickly, it seems like, abandoned him. So the other side of that coin that they got was justice. So, so you got Nineveh. Let me just, in case you don't know Nineveh, um, the city itself, it was founded by a guy who has probably one of the worst names in the Bible, Nimrod, um, or maybe one of the best names in the Bible. Uh, I'm not sure, but um, I've never met a Nimrod. I mean, I have, but they weren't physically named that by their parents, right? So you got Nimrod. He founded Nineveh. He also founded Babylon, Okay, Genesis chapter 10, all right? This guy was a mighty warrior, a mighty conqueror. He, technically, in the Hebrew, he was a conqueror of men, okay? So he was like, he was a bad dude, probably in all aspects of it, right? But he founded Nineveh uh, shortly after the flood. So Genesis chapter 10 is the, the reference there. Nineveh would be, fascinating enough, would be like the rival of Babylon, but both towns he himself established, Okay, the Nineveh and Babylon itself, geographically, they're only about 300 miles apart from each other. But God used both of those cities to uh, correct Israel, which is fascinating as well. So you have Nineveh that came and was causing issues, especially within the northern tribes. But then after Nineveh and after the destruction of Nineveh, you're going to have Babylon come in and take Israel captive, right? So God uses these two corrupt evil representations of really of, of humanity and the best that humanity has to offer to correct his children. So you got greater Nineveh. Um, this would be the, the large city itself. It's about 30 miles long and 10 miles wide, right? It's a m- massive area. Uh, it was protected by five major walls and three moats. Okay. So surrounded by water, big, thick walls. Nineveh proper was three miles long and a half a mile wide. That's where when Jonah was going through and it took him three days to go through Nineveh, this is, he's going through this massive city preaching the same message, only eight words long. Like basically, turn or burn, Nineveh. I mean, that's kind of was his message and they turned. But Nineveh was a massive, massive city. It had a hundred foot walls that were so broad that four chariots could ride on the wall side by side. And they were a hundred feet high. So Super intimidating, incredible structure. I mean, they had hanging gardens as well, just like Babylon did. Beautiful, beautiful city. And they had a zoo. It was nuts, like very advanced in their technology and all of that. But they got, as we'll see in a second, destroyed. So much so that historians thought Nineveh was mythical, because it wasn't even too long after Nineveh was destroyed, where you have key historical figures who would pass by that area, and they had no clue that Nineveh once stood there. And it wasn't until the 1800s that somebody went digging around in the dirt, and these, these hills, Tel is what you, in, in, you go to Israel, you'll see a bunch of hills, they're called Tels. And, and that basically it's a city that's been buried by a bunch of dirt. And this guy went digging around, and he found Nineveh. 
And so they've been digging there and they've, they've established that, yes, this actually did exist. And so the historians had to own up to the fact that the Bible actually was telling the truth. Nineveh did exist. And yet it was exactly like the Bible described in its power and its prestige and all its glory. So Nineveh is a real place visited by a real prophet named Jonah. And Jesus himself referenced Jonah in the New Testament because that's another thing. We didn't really exist, right? Because nobody can get swallowed by a fish and survive. I don't know, but that has happened in our history. So he did, and he was a real guy, went to a real place called Nineveh, but Nineveh would end up being destroyed. So verse 1 of chapter 1 for Nahum, I, I give all this intro for Nineveh because you know we know nothing about Nahum, right? His name means comfort. That's what we know. He's going to tell us kind of what group he's from, and we have kind of an idea of the, the city, but nobody even can say for sure on where he's from. We know it's Israel, but there are some other thoughts that maybe it's not even Israel. It's that he was part of the Jews who were taken away captive. Fascinating stuff. The thing is, you don't need to know too much about Nahum other than he was a guy that God spoke to during a, a crucial time in Judah's history And God gave him a message to deliver not just to Judah, but also it would be directed towards Nineveh, okay? So the the message is about Nineveh, but it's to Judah, okay? So here's, here's what we know about Nahum. Verse 1, it says, this message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum who lived in uh, Elkosh, okay, or Elkosh. Where's that? Nobody knows. They got guesses. They got guesses. And I've, I've seen three different guesses. Um, one of the, the best ones or seemingly most convincing one that I could understand anyways would be maybe Capernaum because Nahum's name is in Capernaum. And so it may have been like he came from there and they renamed the city after him. We I, no, but nobody knows for sure. Again, doesn't matter. Here's a guy who was given a vision and he, he did what God called him to do. Whatever your legacy is in this world, let it just be a guy who showed up, who was called by God to do something, and you just did what you were called to do. We're not going to name any pews after you. We're not going to name any chairs after you. You don't get a brick for this building. Like, that's not what it's about. What it's about is just show up and do what God's called you to do. Nahum's like, you don't need to know my story. We can talk later. We'll see Nahum in heaven. You got all eternity to figure out, hey, Nahum, what's your story? I don't know if that's how it works in heaven as far as like telling the backstory of your life or anything, but who knows? But here he's just, he's got a vision. He needs to, he needs to get this vision out. And verse two is where it starts. It says, the Lord is a jealous God. Jealous God. Now this isn't um, petty suspicion, okay? It's not like in human relationships of jealous, okay? When you're jealous of somebody else, and that sometimes it's with petty suspicions and all that. It's not what it's talking about. He's, he is a righteous, jealous God. He is um, jealous for Israel. He's not jealous of Israel, okay? His heart is for Israel. He is jealous for them and for their attention. He want, he's, he's giving all he has to us, and well, we should respond in like manner. The Lord is, he is a jealous God. I've heard some complaints about that from some people who don't really know the Lord, and they're like, how can he be good when it says in the Bible that he is jealous and jealousy is bad? I'm like, well, okay, I think you're, you're not understanding terms, okay? And 
I want God to be a jealous God, okay? Because if he's a non-jealous God, a non-interested God in us, then why are you serving him? Like he's, if he's like, yeah, you know, like that pantheistic, like I created everything, but I'm way far distant from my creation because I'm not really interested in you guys at all. So you guys just figure it out. Like nobody wants to serve that God. You want to serve the God who's like, yeah, I love you so much that I'm going to solve this major sin issue by sending my son to die on the cross for you because I'm jealous for you because I want to be with you. I want to hang out with you. I would like for you to want to hang out with me as well, right? Like that's a God we want to serve. So there's nothing wrong with him being a jealous God. Here's the flip side. He's filled with vengeance and rage. That's a hard pill for some people to swallow because all we want to talk about is the love of God, right? Like God is love. Yes, he is. Uh, He's also a just God. He's also a vengeance God, a God of vengeance. He's a God of rage. Well, have you ever read the book of Revelation? I mean, sin has to be dealt with. And a rebellious humanity that wants nothing to do with God has to be handled. He wouldn't be loving if he didn't deal with sin. He wouldn't be loving if he just like turned a blind eye to rebellious people. That's not love. So if you ever hear that argument, please understand that's a worldly concept of or definition of love is that if you love somebody, then you just accept everything about them. Tolerance. That's not love. That's actually not love. Um, That's that's damaging. That's hurtful. Um, That's the opposite of love. Love is I do love you. I don't agree with everything that you're doing. I actually can't even go along with you on different decisions and choices you're making. And I love you so much that I will actually express that to you, that here's what the Bible says, and you shouldn't do that. That's love, okay? He's going to display his vengeance and rage because Nineveh, we see in just the the last little bit of verse 2 here, it says he takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. His enemies, in the context of this letter, is Nineveh, whom he showed up and he dealt graciously with. He sent a prophet, a Hebrew man, by way of fish to them, one of the leading cities in the world, to let them know that, hey, I care so much about you guys, I'm going to send a little Hebrew prophet to you to communicate this message that if you just stop doing what you're doing and turn to me, we'll be good. And they did that. But since then, they've been oppressing God's people, and they're wicked. I don't know if you, you know about Nineveh's history, but uh, I mean, just completely, absolutely just wicked. I mean, they would, they would fillet their prisoners of war, like they would skin them alive. Um, and they would display their skins outside their city. They would have little pyramids of human skulls sitting outside of the gates of their, of their cities. They were the ones, the Assyrians, um, who all come from this region, I mean, they're the ones who invented crucifixion. And they would go and they would, they would impale a lot of their prisoners as well. And they tried to devise all these cruel ways of just killing people and having fun with it all along the way. They're wicked, wicked people. And God's like, time's up, time's up. I give you a chance. You're going to make your decisions. You're going to choose which path you want to go. But you can't, you can't come back to God and say like, well, no, that, you're not fair. He's like, I gave you a chance. You chose what you wanted to. So there's consequences to your actions, and the consequences are, well, 
justice from God. Verse three, it says, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. He never lets the guilty go unpunished. That's very comforting. It's hard to understand because even in a world where you got like a messed up justice systems and you're just like, the bad guys get away with everything. The Bible said that's what was going to happen. But don't think that people are getting away with stuff. There's always consequences. Okay. And, and God knows how to, he knows how to deliver the tab at the end of the day. Right. It may not be in our timing, but one day people just like Nineveh, they will have to stand before the Lord. And he's like, all right. So, um, you thought you got away with that. Um, however, I kept a record of everything that you ever did. And here you go. The bill is due. Can you pay it? And you got all eternity. Okay. So he is slow to get angry, but his power is great. He never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and, this, and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. Lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade, and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. God is awesome. Uh, And just so we understand, we can't stand before him on our own. We can't. We needed somebody to stand in our place. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. But God is holy. He is a holy God. And he doesn't take sin lightly. He just doesn't. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him, right? So that's like the good, you know, this is the counter to like, he's got vengeance, he's got wrath, he's coming to, you know, deliver consequences for all this stuff. But then Nahum has this, this nice little verse tucked in there for, for you and I would hope, hey, but don't forget that the Lord is good. He is good. If you need a refuge in, the, in a time of difficulty in, in wherever you're at in life, he's where you go to. He's where you go to. You and I, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, you don't have to fear God in the sense of like cowering in fear, he's going to get me, okay? Like we have reverence towards God because he's God, Right? But I don't walk around flinching every second because he just might get me. That's not a a loving heavenly father, okay? So my sins have been dealt with at the cross, right? And and I I got plenty more. But at no point in time do I ever walk around flinching or fearing God in the sense of like, oh, I think he's he's gonna get me. He's not gonna get me. He got me at the cross. He got me at the cross. So I don't walk in this cowering kind of fear. I walk in a reverence concerning God because, well, he's God. But you can run to him in trouble. He is close to those who trust in him. It says, he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies tangled like thorn uh, thorn bushes and stagger like drunks will be burned up like dry stubble in a field. 
Who is this wicked counselor of yours who plots evil against the Lord? This is what the Lord says. Though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and disappear. Oh, my people, I have punished you before, but I will not punish you again. Now I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. So again, he is writing to primarily Judah, the southern tribes. It's a message about Nineveh, but it is to Israel, okay? Um, He's like, look, I'm going to free you from these oppressors. I'm going to free you from these oppressors. Verse 14, it says, this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians of Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in the temples of your gods. I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. Verse 15, look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows. For your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed, right? So that's like, this is a good thing. This is kind of one of those prophetic moments where it's like, you're seeing the mountain right in front of you, but you're also kind of seeing the mountain in the distance, right? It's a dual prophecy type thing. There was going to be there was going to be a deliverance that happened immediately for them. And what's kind of cool is if you look at the kings of, of Judah, they were going through some, some bad ones. I mean, they had Hezekiah. He was good. And then there was uh, Manasseh. He was not good at all. And then Amon, uh, A-M-O-N, not good at all. He only lasted two years and was, uh, he, was, he was taken out. But then you had um, Josiah gets put as the king at age 16. And he in the midst of his, uh, his kingship, that's when they rediscover the word of God, okay? So they rediscover the word of God, the written word of God, and then they read the written word of God, and then revival happens, basically, in Israel. So could this be a hint of that? Because Nahum could have been writing this letter around the time when Manasseh was the king, okay? Um, so this could have been on the hills of uh, Josiah pretty soon going to be this one who leads them out of like this spiritual garbage that they were in because they've forsaken the word of God. The moment the church shuts the Bible and we center our gatherings around like positive messages, you know, good self-help stuff, man, there there is one person who's not going to show up to that and his name is Jesus. He's just not going to be here, but he will show up when his word is opened he will show up and he will honor his word. Like, it's what we got to do. The Lord will, he honors that. He blesses that. And so that, that happened for Israel. I believe when this letter was written, nobody knows, I mean, the dates. We know like, there's one historical event that we're, we're already talking about, and that's Nineveh's destruction. We know when that happened. But there's another historical event that helps to kind of put a book into this of like, okay, it had to happen between these two dates, Right. So we'll we'll see that here in just a second as we go into chapter two. Your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts, watch the roads, prepare your defenses, call out your forces. Even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will, will restore its honor. Israel's vine has been stripped of branches, but he will restore its splendor. So he has judged Israel, okay? But he's gonna restore Israel. They needed some correction and God is more than willing to use outside sources to bring discipline into your life, okay? It can be in the form of Nineveh or Babylon, right? But if he needs to correct his kids, he's gonna correct his kids. That's just how it works.
Have you ever noticed how little kids try to get away with something? Like sneaking a chocolate chip cookie out of the cookie jar. They think they've succeeded, except for that smudge of chocolate left on their cheek. Talk about a tell-all sign. They can't see it, but anyone who looks at them can. Misbehavior has a way of being found out, just as wrongdoing can't hide in the light of God's truth. We see this in the stories of the minor prophets that were sent by God to reveal the sin and the traps that the people of Judah fell prey to. But in the midst of it all, we see Jesus fighting for his people. How? Through these messages. Through continually picking sinners up by their bootstraps with convicting yet encouraging words to live fully surrendered. You've just heard from Pastor James Grizzle and the ministry of Bread for the Broken out of Calvary Galveston in Galveston, Texas. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today, and our prayer is that you'll find exactly what you've been looking for. We're a group of people of all ages coming together to magnify Jesus. We'd love to have you come join us for a Sunday morning service or a Thursday evening service. You can find out more on our website, breadforthebroken.com. If you feel a nudge from the Holy Spirit to help us spread the good news of the gospel, then click on that donation tab. Once again, that's breadforthebroken.com. Well, that's all that we have for today's edition with Pastor James Grizzle, but we look forward to meeting with you again here on Bread for the Broken. Let me paint the picture of you.